Okay, kia ora. Is everyone, anyone there? This is a first for me, my first live anything on Facebook. So um, if uh, somebody could let me know that somebody is there, that'll be a great help for me. Kia ora. Come on, I'm not showing up on here. Oh, kia ora Jason, how are you mate? Very good. We'll just wait for a few minutes. Hear me? Great. Thank you. Kia ora, Gregory. Kia ora, Greg. Can see everyone coming in. So this is a bit of a first for me. So I'm, I'm a pretty much a tech-challenged kind of guy. Probably the best things I've... Um, it's glitching out a bit. Okay, let's see if we can... How's that sounding, Leon? Are you getting everything okay there? Kia ora, Duncan. Good to see you, mate. Kia ora Scott, welcome, kia ora. Okay, everyone's back. Kia ora Mark, good to see you. I better start doing some waving, Dave. Bring them on camera. No, I don't know how to yeah, do just, that. No, just, so yeah. I'll just get out of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, kia ora everybody. Oh, look at, hi Alicia, aloha, how's Hawaii? Good to see you guys. Welcome. Now, I do live in the middle of nowhere, so forgive me if um, if we come in and out of, of focus at times of a signal. So we've got 16 people so far and adding all the time. Well, kia ora tato, everybody, and aloha to our friends over in Hawaii. Good to see you. Also, we've got some friends um, coming in from down the east coast, down the Waikato, I can see. Um, lots um, from Auckland coming on. Welcome, kia ora, and welcome. It's, we've got a big, big discussion to have today. And um, we've even got people coming on from the South Island, which I'm starting to see. And we've got our good friend Mark from down in the very, very beautiful uh, uh, Eastern Bay of Plenty. Cousin Lisa. Kia ora, cousin. Please let me know if you can't hear me. I know that Leon said that um, you can hear me. Just one more time, if someone else can give me a, an affirmation that um, you guys are hearing me, that'll be good, please. Great. Kia ora, Rebecca. All the way down in Christchurch. Good to see you. Now, many of you probably don't um, don't recognise me because I've become a bit of a long-haired hippie in my time under under lockdown. And um, but uh, I assure you that I am a lot younger than I uh, than I look. So good. Welcome everybody. Kia ora, Tatu. Uh, who else have we got coming on? We've got Neil. Kia ora, Neil. My good buddy, Neil. Leon, where's Gavin? Leon, Jen, Jen Brown, great, welcome. Kia ora, Protama. A tēnā tato katoa, nā mihi mananu ki a koutou i roto e nā ahuatanga o tēnei wā. A kua tai mai a hau ki te tautuko e te, e te kaupapa whakaherehere tēnei ki te, uh, te whakawhiti kōrero e te kaupapa mea nui, freedom, 
mō koutou iwi o te motu nei. Nō reira, karakia e te whakamutunga e te atua me whakakororia tono ingoa i ngā wā katoa. Ki e taumai te manakitanga ki rongi te kingi a i hukrai te paimairere ki ai e me tono whare me te kaupapa kōrero e tēnei wā. Nō reira, e roto o tau ingoa tapu, matua tama, wairua tapu, āmene. So, family, well, welcome to you all. It's really great to have you, have you here. It's a very, very, very unsettling time that we're in, and I've got to admit that um, it's, been a real, it's been a real shocker for me too to see what's going on. But before we get started, I just want to point out some really basic things. I'm not a lefty, I'm not a righty, I'm not political. I'm smack down in the middle of everything. Um, I consider myself an observer, and, um, and I've been studying the topic of geopolitics um, with a religio background for many, many, many years. Um, as I said in my, um, in my invite to you all today, um, I've got an interesting career. Most of you know me as Billy TK Jr., the, uh, the blues guitar player, mm-hmm. but I've actually, the international blues guitar player, but I've actually had other parallel careers as well. I've done a short stint in, in the police. I've also been a volunteer firefighter, um, and I've also been in the New Zealand Army, all things I'm very, very proud of. But when the New Zealand Army, I was able to, um, uh, to do some training with the uh, New Zealand Military Intelligence Corps. Uh, that's a tri-service corps, corps in New Zealand, um, involving Navy, Army and Air Force. And, um, and I was very, very blessed to, um, to have had um, some very good courses that I went on, which introduced me to the very, very essential rudiments of how to be an uh, intelligence um, operator within the New Zealand Military Intelligence Corps. Um, that training gave me, a, gave me a, a, a very good basis to which to research and investigate topics. And it, it gave me the, a, an incredible sense of discipline that they have to instill in you so that when you look at information and you interpret it, that you don't go off and, and make, up your own, make up your own story based on the pretense that you want to see. The, the art of intelligence gathering really is about looking at the environment and, and taking notes of what you see, building a a catalogue of information about what you're looking at and then pulling it apart, looking at each component of the information that you've, that you've compiled and from there you make assessments. From those assessments you come up with a, with a list of, of probabilities in terms of outcomes and actions and then from there you come up with a, with a series of, um, of, uh, of recommendations of what you think is going to ha- happen. Now, in the intelligence world, as you can imagine, especially in the military, if you get that wrong, you, people are going to die. So they, they, they're very, very brutal in how they teach you this discipline, and it's this type of discipline that I've, that I've applied uh, to, my, to my studies today and, uh, and, and that I've done in the past. Um, the other thing I want to point out, too, is that um, I'm a biblical Christian. I don't, I'm not into denominations or anything like that, and, uh, and I've got a, one or two scriptures kind of spread out throughout this, um, this presentation today, and it's not to ram anything through down your throat to you, okay? It's really about giving you an insight to how the Bible has, has, got, has predicted well in advance happenings that are happening today, and I want you to see the correspondence between what we're seeing today happening and to what the Bible says, but it's intermittent, okay? Um, but before I get going, um, just a couple of things I wanted to point out, especially about my, my, my upbringing and background. I've got two uh, two brothers online, Gavin and Leon, who I grew up with. So um, uh, they're uh, 
they were my best friends when I was a kid, and we lived across the road from each other, and uh, they know my upbringing. I basically had a, had an upbringing, um, Pākehā mum, Māori father, and um, and gr grew up in a state house in, in South Auckland in Mangere. Now, that's pretty much um, a very, very humble beginning, okay, to all those out there that have ever lived in a state house. I'm one of them, okay? And, uh, and, in, and in my home, um, we didn't have Jesus. We didn't have God in the sense that I know him to be today. Uh, my father, of course, as many of you will know, is, is the famous and legendary guitar player, uh, Billy T.K. Senior. Um, Billy T.K. Senior is a, um, uh, was a, uh, um, a Krishna adherent uh, for some time when he, was, when he was a young man. And from there, he went into, a, I guess, a spirituality focus that very much involved the uh, Eastern philosophy gurus, you know, Hinduism-based um, faiths. Um, my mum was very much of the um, of the of the Buddhist um, ilk, and uh, so I grew up with having those little Buddhas sitting all around our house and all that. So Jesus and uh, and all that sort of thing was was really wasn't a part of my life. Ha however, having said that, we've got whānau that are Catholic, we've got whānau that are Ratana, and we've got whānau that are Presbyterian. All right, so that's the backdrop I grew up with. Even though I didn't have it in my own immediate home. That was certainly uh, in the peripheral of my, um, in my, in my, in my Fano background there. But one thing I, I just I, again want to point out too is that I'm not into religiosity. I'm into I'm into the Bible, the truth, and I'm into being observant. So the disciplines, like I said earlier, um, that I've got from um, from having been in those courses with the New Zealand Military Intelligence have proven very very helpful. So that I'm able to to uh, to study things and also um, extract uh, probabilities. Of outcomes from the information that I that I study and investigate. Okay, so let's get let's let's kick into this. So we've seen some alarming things happen over the last few weeks, and what I want to do, I, I don't want to focus too much on the on the details on that today. I want to start with a with a high overview. Okay, uh, many of you are talking about Bill Gates and the connection. So just to clarify, right there, we all know that Bill Gates is is a is a is a crook. He's um. He's very much of the uh, Dr. Evil ilk. Um, for those of you who um, saw the Austin Powers movies, he's the classic, he's the classic billionaire criminal. Okay, so we so let's just get that off uh, off straight away. And also, when you examine um, the connections between um, Bill Gates, okay, and you start to t start to unravel his connections, you start to get a sense that there's something not right here. For example, if we look at uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is um, Trump's medical advisor and head of the uh, coronavirus response team for, for Trump. Well, we know that Dr. Fauci is, um, is also a criminal as well. Why? Because, of course, it's come out now that um, he's been, um, uh, through his um, National Institute of Health in the US and um, the Agency for um, Infectious Diseases, he's funded the Wuhan lab, um, gave them $3.7 million of American taxpayer money to China back in 2015. And uh, to help um, basically form a weaponized version of the coronavirus. But the interesting thing about that, of course, is that people are starting to talk about that. Trump's referenced it, but of course, the beginnings of that research started in Fort Detrick in in North Carolina, and that's and that was substantiated by Dr. Judy uh, Michaelwitz in the last um, last few weeks. He's gained a great profile online 
uh, for blowing the lid on, uh, on the corruption within the CDC, of course, which is the Centre for Disease Control. Um, which regulates the pharmaceutical industry, pretty much like the FDA. I mean, they, what they set is a benchmark that goes all around the world, okay? And, uh, and that's also a criminal, um, a criminal uh, organization as well. So we're not doing too, too good here when we start examining those, uh, those organizations. But I do want to start, start at the very, very, very high level about, um, about what we're dealing with here and where it's kind of funneled into, into, into a very narrow... Um, um, channel of events to where we head to, where we've head to now. Now, this plan that we're talking about ultimately involves a um, a global plan to bring the entire world into a global system. Some call it the new world order. Some call it the one world system. It's all pretty much the same thing. But we need to examine what the goals are of this of this system. And it's something that I began to look at way back in 2001. If I can cast your mind to where I was in 2001, sitting down in Waiuru at the military intelligence course that they that they put me on, one of the one of the uh, topics that they gave that they gave me to to write a thesis on and do a presentation on was on the geopolitical and geo-religious um, conflict between Judeo-Christian world and the Islamic world, starting with the 1962 Yemeni uprising. So that was a very nice, light topic to start with. And when I started to go into um, into studying the the dy dynamics between the friction between the the Judeo Christian world and Islam, it I, I noticed you know a whole bunch of things that that just didn't kind of add up. 9/11 had happened. Okay, this is a few months after 9/11, but this was going back to 1962, and it really did put me on a course to examine why and how the conflict and the friction between uh, the Islamic East and the the Christian West, shall we say, began. But this this one world system that we're that we're now seeing and getting the sense of uh, that that is materialising before us, it's really about a central control of all populations. Now I know not, I know a lot of you out there that are listening to this would have heard of Agenda 30, and uh, and and Agenda 30. We're going to talk a little bit more as we go on. But this one world system is about a central control of all populations. It's about controlling all of the issues that affect. Uh, the the I guess that sustained life that are involved for us to have a life in a society any kind of society so the system will control everything absolutely everything so that you can't move unless you've got an approval to do that or a permit okay which we'll we'll get into into that it's also some of the other parts of it that are going to come into play is that they will control um, they'll control the weather okay so those of you that know about geoengineering which isn't a conspiracy, it's a fact, geoengineering, um, you'll know that, that, that that's part of the weather control system and that's also um, a, a very important ingredient that they need to, need to have in their pot of control because it controls the food chain and the ability for populations to grow their own food. We're also talking about a system that, that will control education. Also, we're also talking about a one world financial system. We're talking about a global military system as well. To those of um, of my of my brethren that uh, from the army that went on um, UN peacekeeping um, um, deployments, I never got there. I was picked twice to go on them, and both times I had higher ranks take my job off me. But to those that went on these on these UN peace missions, though they they looked almost ineffective. Okay, this is we're going back now to the out through the late 90s and and early 2000s. It was it was in a situ it was almost a situation where they were really just 
just there for show, really. If you talk to some of it, some of the soldiers that went uh, on the Yugoslavia rotation during the Baltic um, wars that were over there, you know, they were really in a really tough situation where the peacekeepers basically got threatened as well as much as the civilian population. So they're really observers and they weren't really able to interfere. But those of us who have examined what's happening with the UN and the framework around how the military can be used today, it's a much, much different story. They, have a, they, ha they now have the legal framework to be able to go into countries and, and, uh, and do a lot more um, in terms of coping with the rules of engagement that a peacekeeping force would normally have. That's all been eradicated. The, um, the, um, you know, they basically uh, removed all the barriers for, uh, from, that would prevent the UN to deploy um, literally a, a global police force to go into um, sovereign countries and, and act on behalf of the UN. Okay, we're also talking about a one legal framework. So we're looking about, we're talking about a one system of law uh, for everybody around the world, regardless of what your what your own um, uh, country's legal system says, your country will sign up to a to a legal framework. That's already happening. New Zealand's already signed up to many portions of it, which will go into it. And basically, this one this one one world or one global legal system that's being set up right now means that there are no record there is no recourse for citizens in countries to go to their own. Um, go to your own governments and say, hey, we don't like this, we want something changed, okay? That's basically been taken away from, that's going to be taken away from, from everyone on the planet because it'll all be funneled into one, one, one legal system. So when, a, when, when citizens in a country have a problem with something, they can't just go to their council or go to their government uh, and to, to the country's laws, they've got to go back through a central system. Um, we're also talking about a one world religion as well. Many people will understand that these, all these other elements that we've talked about that are involved with, with controlling health and education and all those sorts of things. But when you say a one world religion or a one world spirituality, people don't really understand how that plays into this. But we'll go into that more as we go into this presentation today, but it's intriguing and it's very interesting to understand really that, that the UN, despite the fact that it talks about um, you know, uniting everybody so we can do better trade and and be better 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 cousins and whānau in the world. It's it's actually based on it's actually all based on a spirituality, and it's not a spirituality spirituality when you get stuck into it. That's a very very good one, and we'll talk more about that as well. And so when you talk about these one world control systems that are that are incredibly powerful, incredibly thorough. How the heck are they going to do that? Well, we know now, don't we? We know that it's going to be deployed and managed through the technological, te technological um, power of the 5G network. Now, people talk, um, a lot of people are talking like 5G is only a new thing, but to those that have been involved in the military, it's been around for a long time. You know, 6G, they're already, already talking about 7G. And that's why when you, um, when you, if you've ever seen helicopter, military helicopter pilots in the flesh, you'll see that some of them have these visors on their helmets and they've got protection around them. And you think, jeepers, that's a... That's a, lot of, um, that's a lot of hardware they have in their headwear, but it's all because that they know that they've got to have uh, protection against, um, against uh, uh, 5G and 6G weapons in the, in the combat field. So that's just something we'll come back to. Okay, so before we press on to, to start to dive into, into the details of this One World system, there are some things that, that I think we need, to, we need to get straight so that we're all on the same page. And... Uh, and we've got to understand that that to to bring in this one world system, they've got to control the thinking of, thinking of humanity. Have to do it. 
Because why? Because all of us love our freedom. All of us, um, well, we should love our freedom. All of us um, really don't want to give up our sovereignty and our nationalism. And we, yes, we do want to be a part of a big global family, but we want our own sovereignty. We want our own identity and traditions to be maintained. But how the heck are they going to get people to swallow this? And it's only, and I can, I can say categorically, it's through a, um, a very, very sophisticated and multi-decade rollout of a psychological operation. Um, anyone that's studied psychological operations will be aware that we're surrounded by them. Okay, this is one of the things that they, again, touch on, even in the rudimental, uh, rudimental training that I did in the military intelligence corps. They, they teach you that psychological operations, you know, um, are far outside of the, of the, uh, of the combat field or theatre. It involves, you know, deploying, um, you know, psychological operations on, a, on the public so that you get them thinking and responding in a certain way, disarming them even, and getting them to be compliant to what they want to achieve or what they want to um, get you to do or what they want you to believe. But one of the interesting things is that, that there's a, um, I've seen over the last few weeks, and I probably didn't articulate this very well myself, that, um, that I'm not left or right, okay? And, uh, and, and it's because I understand that behind the scenes um, that it's the, same, it's the same agenda and the same people pushing the agenda that is us using the left and using the right. Okay, but when we say left and right, normally when we say left, we mean socialism. Okay, out of socialism, we have communism, and, uh, and we've got all that, which we're going to talk more about in a second. But we'll, and then on the right, we have what we call, you know, the nationalistic side, if you like. And that's where you get the other aspects of nationalism that come into it, where fascism can be, can be, um, uh, can be utilized as a, as a, as a factor to, to drive an outcome that you want. But let's let's study let's, let's study this a little bit. So on the on the left with socialism, I know that I've I've hammered Jacinda recently a lot about about being a socialist. But it's also with the backdrop of understanding that she's just a tool. That the left is just a tool. If we look at the national government, we had a so-called centre-right, a so-called centre-right government, and within the centre-right government, they achieve. They're given a, a set of tasks, okay, this is at the elite leadership level, to complete, to bring in this, this world system, okay? And that's based on using the free market, using trade, uh, to, to manipulate the trade and economic aspects to where they want so that they can control the, um, uh, the financial system, can control how people do trade, how they invest, the movement of money. And all of us that are involved in investment and investment work like I do now, we know how tough that the... Um, that the uh, that the the anti-monetary laundering uh, system really really is, and it's not just about proving the 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 um, the legitimacy of money. It's about a control system, and we know that that a cashless society is coming in. But the but on the right hand side, we know that um, that through capitalism, that we have the free market, and we have these we have a very healthy middle class that is able to. You know, create real problems for the hierarchy or, or the elites. Why? Because because in the middle class you have the you have the economic power base to basically, you know, really make things difficult for economies. But of course, on the right hand side, on the centre right side, on and the extreme right, we also have the deployment of fascism. Now, when people say fascism, they always think, of course, they talk they think about Mussolini, they think about the Nazis and that. But I always want to want to clarify what the what the what the what the I was going to say Bible, but what the uh, 
um, encyclopedia and the dictionary definition of fascism really is the joining of corporate power and government power. Okay, and that's why the right has always been seen to be the the platform from which fascism can survive. Okay, and and that's why um, when you study fascism, that's when you get you get multinational corporates that start wielding the power of of sovereign um, governments and regional governments. And what you get is is that you get companies, of course, like Monsanto, that are now starting to control the food supply issue and the food growth and the food production aspects. Okay, and um, and that's fascism. Okay, because what's happening is you'll get you're getting a national a multinational like Monsanto going into um, places like India where they've where they've just been practically booted out. Um, where they'll go and they'll do a deal with all the farmers uh, to supply them seed, and of course GMO seed is what they get given, and that GMO seed is only good for one crop, and of course the poor farmer has to go back and continually buy buy off Monsanto. So what happens at the end of the day is that the corporate agency or the corporate organisation ends up controlling the food supply to to the jurisdiction that, that they're in or the country that they're operating in. So that's fascism, okay? The, the, the interesting thing about the Nazis, and people always say that Nazism is over here and that socialism over, is over here. However, however, what, is Na- what were the Nazis? They were the National Socialist Workers, Workers Party of Germany, weren't they? So, in the, in, and in the core of, of, the, uh, of the Nazi movement was, was a form of, form of, um, of uh, socialism. And of course, Karl Marx himself, to those of us that have looked at Karl, Karl Marx and understand who he is, of course he was a German, um, he was a philosopher, he, wrote the, he co-wrote the Communist Manifesto, he also um, wrote a very, very famous book called German Thinking, and also he also wrote the um, the book on dialectic thinking as well, which we'll go into in a minute. But Hitler picked up a lot of his of his thinking out of that, and he applied it into his own into his own Nazi uh, Party movement. And, he, and Himmler, who who was a very interesting character, who was his who was a very evil man who worked for for Hitler. Himmler, who um, who helped create the SS and, and, and formed the Gestapo, or Goebbels, though he was an interesting, interesting character, and he came from a Jesuit family background. And he framed his, his organisations within the, within the Nazi movement on, 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 socialist, on socialism. Okay? So I just want to clarify that fascism and socialism aren't that far apart, because in the core of fascism, you will see the, the strength of socialism tied into it. Now let's talk about the left. So we'll come back to we'll come back to that later. So on the left we have socialism. To those of you that have um, um, studied socialism a little bit and communism, you'll understand that really what it's about. It's all about something that they called production. It's all about production. It's about herd production. Herd production. Let's think about that herd production. We hear that term used that oh we're just cattle, we're just sheeple. Which is part of the herd. Well, that's a big part of socialism of the what they call the proletariat. Okay, and that's a very big word for saying the herd proletariat. It's where you're talking about everybody that is a part of a society in a socialist framework is all working towards a common goal, right? Of production level, of industry, of production. So, so Billy doesn't become Billy the guy. Billy is a member of the herd that produces. And contributes to the to the benefit of the society, and that's where you come up with the term the greater good. So that's socialism and verity. But within within the socialist framework, you have you have the mass, which is the proletariat. 
but you also have a ruling hierarchy. And, and, and that's a contradiction in itself because when you study socialism, it's about removing, removing um, you know, any, any sense of, of a class structure. That's what it's about. It's about flattening everybody out. So it's about removing the middle class, moving the, and, and bringing the upper, the, the lower class. There, I say that term, um, up or the social or the state houses. People that like me that grew up in those. It's about bringing us up into the middle, in, into an area where everybody's the same. Okay, but the rich, as the saying goes, the rich will get richer, but everyone else gets poorer. So socialism is about flattening everyone out, but it still doesn't get eradicate. The hierarchy class, and it's quite funny because when you go into the um, into uh, studying the Soviet Union and even even the um, even the the Chinese Communist Party, the very elites in that in those framework always have a completely different lifestyle of of luxury and ease that the proletariat don't have. The other thing that I also want to point out about socialism is that I, I used to think when I was a teenager that I, I that I was I was, a, I was a socialist, but why did I think that? Why did I think that? Because I grew up thinking, well, hold on a second, I care for people. Uh, Mum and dad were hippies, so I grew up, you know, pretty much thinking that, you know, let's keep our environment green. Let's let's make sure everybody's got enough. Let's share. Fakafanungatanga, you know, even for um, Fano that went I went weren't related to by blood, were related to us by philosophy and Fanungatanga, which is for those of that don't speak Māori, that's about familyness. It's like my brothers Gavin and Leon, I'm not blood related to them, but they're as much as my brothers as if I was related to them. Okay, but but within the socialist framework, um, that's not what socialism is, because I grew up thinking that socialism was just caring for people, but in, in essence, the, the, the main problem that we have, aside from flattening out everybody into a homogenous um, level of, of economic power and, and rights and, and privileges, other than the hierarchy, if you don't agree with a socialist government, they put a bullet in the back of your head. Now, am I prepared to do that to anyone who, do, who, who disagrees with me? No, not, not for, not for a, all the money in the world would I go up to someone and say, look, sorry, buddy, um, you don't agree with me. Um, I'm, a, I'm a socialist government representative. You're dead. There's no way that I would do that. Okay, So I'm not a socialist. And, but, but socialist governments in the last 100-odd years, since really the beginning of the of the of the uh, Soviet revolution, they've killed over 120 million people for disagreeing with them. Chairman Mao, in in the first five years of the Communist China Party, they say killed between 50 and 60 million pe people just in that in that very short nimble time that they that they had that. But when you examine um, the, the 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 socialist or the communist governments that have that have um, had the opportunity to function fully and and uh, no pun intended execute its will. Anyone that, that has a, has a um, disagreeing idea or, or is a dissenter, you get a bullet in the back of your head. So I learned very quickly once I studied socialism that I wasn't a socialist, that I really was just someone who loves people and I want to see do well and have, have opportunities to be fed, to have decent homes, to be healthy and all those good things. But I also want to point out that, that, um, that when we talk about the right-hand side, just going there for one, one minute because I forgot to mention this, People talk about the free market and of, of the right, and that yes, the right can be used for nationalism and can be used for fascism, but those drive, the driver of that is of course the um, having the free market, which everybody loves. Anyone in business loves the free market. Why? Because it's exactly what it means. We've got an opportunity to work hard and get rewarded for our, for our efforts. But people, people kind of point the finger out and say, oh, it's capitalism, and that capitalism is a bad thing. 
But capitalism, just like socialism, has has different branches of it. Capitalism has there's the, the we have the postmodern um, neo-capitalism, which is a very very selfish example of it. But classical capitalism also has a part in it whereby people that do well in business want to see other people thrive and do well as well. So not every, I don't have a big beef with people that are extremely, extremely wealthy, and I've got some good mates that are wealthy, and they're blooming good people. You know, if I rang them up and said, look, man, I'm desperate, I need a few grand, they'd give it to me in a, in a, in a heartbeat, okay? So they're good people, they've got staff that they look after and that they care about. And there's one thing that I want to say that this COVID-19 crisis has done, and as a good friend of mine pointed out, it's revealed... How, how, how really our business people in Aotearoa here in New Zealand, how good they really are, because a lot of people that could have been laid off haven't been. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that, that, the, that the left and right, what the functionalities of the left and right are. But the deeper meaning behind, behind the left and right politic is that it doesn't matter if you vote for the, the left or the right, or, or I like to say it doesn't matter if you vote for the devil in pink, or vote for the devil in blue because behind it it's the same devil and within that you come across something called Hegelianism dialectic thinking has anyone heard of that heard of the uh, 19th century another German not to around the contemporary contemporaneous time of Karl Marx but Hegel was a um, when you examine him he was an incredible deep thinker, unwell man at the same time it always seems that these incredible thinkers are uh, you know, they've sort of got through loose as well running up there. Well, Hegel um, was a man that created a, a... They don't they say that it's not a philosophy and it's not a principle, but it kind of is, really, because Hegel, Hegel came up with a, with a system of thinking called the Hegelian dialectic, okay? Now, when you go into socialism, you'll come across dialectic thinking and socialism, and, they, and the socialists try and claim that dialectic thinking, okay, is, is simply the process of thinking things through, of talking to someone else and thinking things through and resolving them through intellectual um, application and coming through a resolve and acting on that resolve. The problem is with socialism, as I just pointed out, if you don't agree with their resolve, they put a bullet in the back of your head. But with an Helgelian dialectic thinking, it really is about creating what they call the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. What is that? Okay, let's say... Let's say... Let's, leave, let's use a live example. Let's use communist China. We've got communist China over here, who we know are the, are the communists. We'll call them the thesis, the antithesis to communism and to uh, the communist Chinese party. Let's, let's use uh, America. Okay, we'll put them over here. So you've got thesis and antithesis, or you've got, the, you've got, the, uh, you've got one thought here and you've got its opposite or counterpart over here. But over here, you have the synthesis, which is in the middle, which is when the two come together and unify, okay, and that's the resolve, okay, but but this is how it's used to to for insidious ways, and and is that where you take the thesis and the antithesis, and you rub them together, you rub you rub you know different cultures, different societies, you rub them together purposely. It's artificially created, and this is what I discovered when I when I studied um, uh, the 1962 uprising in Yemen and how that went into the the, the friction between Islam and the West. Two, the, two, the two principles or philosophies, thesis and antithesis, you rub them up artificially, you create a problem, you create a war, you cause so much pain, so much anxiety, so much suffering that the two come together to create peace and you create 
the synthesis that you that you wanted. So behind the scenes, you have a puppeteer organization that's creating the friction on one side, also creating the friction on the other side, has a goal that they need in the middle and they rub the two cultures and Sorry guys, I'm back. I'm just having it's raining here. Sorry about that guys. Alright, so so that Helgelianism, that dialectic thinking, you've got to keep these things in mind because it has a lot to do with what we're dealing with today, okay? It's really, really important. But the but the control of thought and using the political process, it's all about it's all about tricking us to 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 take our eye off the ball. So while we're having a go at at um, Jacinda and people are getting defensive for for Jacinda, they don't actually realise that I'm actually having a go at what's behind her that's driving this action, okay? Because there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that Jacinda is not is not acting to a script that her puppeteer masters have given it. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. We'll 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 go through that in a second. But out of this dialectic Helgelianism and creating the pain between the thesis and the and the anti, and, and, and antithesis to bring a synthesis, they use pain and fear. That's their tool. Pain and fear. That's how they do it. They use mass distraction. So in the so ever since the the Cold War began in in, in 1945, as soon as the Germans were were defeated, and then all the all the powers, Allied powers, moved into um, into Berlin, and then Europe started getting carved up. Ever since really 1945, that's when it really this this plan of action to to create pain in the world, to create this one world government. That's really where it started to be to begin. Why? Because of course they created the thesis, which was the communist East, Russia, and the West, and the Cold War, and of course the friction, the friction, the pain, the threat of of nuclear war. At every time, if you speak to older people that lived throughout that time, and even 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 I can remember that in the 80s. You know, it was always the fear that at any moment a nuclear bomb could be dropped on us, and that was really played upon, upon to great effect in the 60s. But it's about mind conditioning, creating things around us that that distract us from being aware people. It's part of a psychological operation. That's why we have, that's why Hollywood was was was. was the more I understand about Hollywood, that's really basically what it was set up for. Why? Because it does. And what do we have now? We have. You know, Hollywood had its, has its movies and all that, but then it goes and creates a thing called what? Reality TV. You know, unbelievable things like, you know, the most untalented people on the planet, like Kim Kardashian, suddenly becomes a, <laughs> a major global star. Why? Because they've created this whole, um, you know, this, this whole hysteria around looking into people's private lives. And that, again, distracts us. It distracts us. Sporting, all of that, all the stuff that I love. Music, guitar playing, dare I say. And I love guitar, as we all know. So does my brother, Andrew Langsford, who's watching. You know, we love guitar, but, these, but you know, it's not, the, it's not necessarily the instruments and all that. It's, it's how an industries are created from these things to distract us and take us take take our minds off um, what's really going on around us and that's why they've been able to do what they've what they've done over a long long period of time to us so that w when um, when something like this with the COVID-19 crisis happens most people don't know how to apply critical thinking and when you do you call it a conspira conspiracy conspiracy uh, nut but I do want to again if we're talking about definition what is a conspiracy people think they think strange things about what a conspiracy is, but actually a conspiracy, by, again by, by encyclopedia and dictionary definition, is when you have a small group of people working on plans and, and activities to the detriment of a, main, of a big, much, much, much bigger group of people. So that's a conspiracy, right? And of course you have conspiracy facts and you have conspiracy theory. But like everything in life, we have thresholds, and once you cross a certain, certain line for anything, a theory becomes a fact. 
And it's the same with the conspiracy angle as well. So when you, yes, it's all conspiracy theory up to here, but once it crosses a certain line, then it's just a fact and it can't be argued with. So I just wanted to talk about some of these these things around politics because I've, 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 seen the, I've seen the anxiety online on my Facebook between people who are defending Jacinda and, and saying they're lefties and saying they're righties, and it's not about any of that. And I can assure you I'm not a lefty, I'm not a righty, I'm none of that. I'm just someone that, that wants to be aware and wants to think things through. Okay, let's go back into this into the situation that we're in, into now. So we've talked about this this global system that has goals to control every aspect of our of our um, of our lives. But how are they going to do that? How are they going to do that? Good questions. Okay, so now I want you to start making some notes if you haven't been already. Okay, I want you to write down the UN Agenda 30. This is not a conspiracy. This is a fact. If you Agenda 30, you may come across. Um, something online called Agenda 21, which is the predecessor of Agenda 30. So Agenda 21 and Agenda 30, just go to the UN website, un.org, and you'll find it there. But read between the lines. It's got really neat things like, like you know, sustainable, sustainable development. But you will notice, you'll start to see keywords like, you know, equity, okay? You'll start, they use words like equity, um, bringing every, leaving no one behind, um, you know, social equity, they'll start using terms like that, and that is what, what you start talking about, um, that's when you start seeing the influence of socialism creeping into that, okay? But Agenda 30, have a good look at that. And now, what is Agenda 30? Okay, Agenda 30, right off the bat, in the simplest way that I can, can put it, is really the mechanism that the world is going to use to bring the one world system in. Now, just something that's really important to, to understand is, is that... Um, a lot of people don't really understand what the uh, what the what the UN was founded on, what principles it was founded on, and by who, and for what purpose. So the UN, of course, is is um, is looked upon as this panacea of hope for the planet. But I want to point something out to you that back back in the book of Genesis, there was a period where where people uh, basically rebelled against God, and they were going to build a huge huge tower. We all know the story. It's the Tower of Babel, and God came down and He saw that the criminality of the behaviour and the sin of and the sin of the people, and He separated everybody. Okay, separated everyone, created new languages, split everybody out, and dispersed us across the planet. Right now, so if God separates, and then this, and then an organisation comes up, and it's called the United Nations, we can be sure that whatever is behind the United Nations. Is going to is is going to be in, in is going to be the antithesis, shall we say, or antithesis to where God's coming from. So the UN organisation, actually, the first few um, secretary generals were communists, social Marxists, and Nazis. Those were, they were your first three um, secretary generals, okay? And that really replaced the uh, the the predecessor organisation, which was the League of Nations, which was formed after after the Treaty of Versailles was um, signed after World War One. And uh, I'm just going, just going, <laughs> indexing my mind, so I'll have to keep thinking about this. And uh, the UN was really constructed as a as a means to which to to formulate a plan to bring everyone together, like the title says, United Nations. But not just United Nations on a on a peace plan where we all respect each other and we have all our sovereignty and borders, but to create this system of of absolute control. But the, what we saw develop in 1992, um, a man, another billionaire, it's always the billionaires, isn't it? 
Another billionaire turned up on the scene, Maurice Strong. So write this name down, Maurice Strong, M-A-U, R-I-C-E, Maurice Strong. He's an oil billionaire. So this guy, an oil billionaire, I just want to drive in and make sure you know that Maurice Strong was is a, an oil billionaire, turned up to the, to the UN's Rio Summit, or the Rio Summit on Sustainability in 1992, and he created the, the entire, what they called the Gaia Plan, G-A-I-A, and that was where you had the entire uh, plan for sustainability start to, start to, to be developed, evolve, and then, and then become what it is today. So Maurice Strong and the UN and a whole bunch of signatory nations came together for a very honourable cause, which was to, to make sure that our planet could be, would, would be sustainably used so that people could eat and be safe and that, thing, that the world wouldn't be polluted. Those are nothing wrong with that idea, nothing, as long as that people are free to do it. But um, a whole bunch of countries signed on to that, to the Rio Accord, and from there, the, the Agenda 21 framework was developed. So Agenda 21, Agenda 30. But what are, what are Agenda 30 and Agenda 21 about? Well, first and foremost, it's about control of what you do with your land. So I hate to say this, but if you go and check out your local council in New Zealand, even in here in Aotearoa, definitely in the United States, um, you'll go and you will find that, that your council has signed up to the Agenda 21 principles, okay? So Agenda 21, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've got some notes here which I'll, um, which I'll share with you. These are, I've just downloaded some thoughts down here. But Agenda, Agenda 21, Agenda 30 have everything to do with land use, what you, can, what you can grow, what you can use your land for, what you build. It's also about permits and consents of any kind that you need to, uh, to do anything with your land. So if you want to, as, as some of us know, you know, put a toilet in your home, that's a huge consenting process. And what happens is, is that when you put in a, when a, 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 uh, an application for a resource consent, what it does is it goes into your, your, your council, and I'm, I'm ex-Auckland council, didn't work in this area, but I've got a rough understanding about how it works, goes into your council, and the very, very first thing they do, they look, at your, they look at your resource consent for what you do, and they have the Agenda 21 principles over here, okay? And they go, right, do you tick it all off? And they, and they go, yes, no, yes, no, and they have a box a long list of things that they tick off, and if you don't tick off all of them, then they come and see you and get, try and get you to tick them all off, or they don't get, grant you your consent. So that's Agenda 30. So it's buildings, um, building and construction, and it's also about permits and consents, what you can grow on your land, how you choose to use your land, but it's also about population movement. Underneath the, underneath the principles of Agenda 21 and 30, you will see that the ultimate aim is to take everybody out of the rural environment and get everybody living in urban environments, okay? Now, in the United States, for um, my good friends Alicia and, uh, and Dave in Hawaii that are watching now, if you, you, there's a thing called ICLE, right? ICLE, uh, ICLE, I-C-L-E, which is basically um, the, the, the town city planning, right? So ICLE is the, is the um, or the county system that they use to apply to, um, to execute and roll out the principles of Agenda 21 and Agenda 30. But ultimately, it is about shifting people out of the rural environments and pushing them into urban environments. And that's why you see, you see things like you know, sp spatial planning in cities, right? So you'll start to see and wonder, why the heck have we just spent you know, 20 million on cycleways when no one's using them? Because eventually, they want to get all of the population base in there, right? Not using cars and driving into the main city, 
but everybody either walking, running, or on cycles. That's it. That's why those cycle lanes that are there that are not used now aren't being used because they haven't pushed anyone, all everyone into the urban environment. But if you go into Auckland right now, you will see that you know, even on a busy day, you might see one or two cyclists if you're lucky using these cycle lanes. They're just not used. And I've done a bit of research and um, 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 online um, with counties in in in, uh, in the U.S. and California that are that are complaining. You know, ratepayers complaining that their money's going into these into these lanes and into these into these spatial um, uh, planning programs, and no one's using them. It's because the population base isn't in there yet. So that's that's one part of it over there. So land use, food, right, food, growing and harvesting. In Agenda 30, they will control all of the seed supply. So here's another clue. So we talked about the fascism part where you have corporate power working with government power. Here's a good example of it here. And we mentioned it before when, when com companies like Monsanto come in and they control the whole agenda around seeding and supplying seed to the market. Mm -hmm. That's why I want to encourage anyone out there, save your seeds, your pumpkin seeds, your kumul kumul seeds, whatever seeds you've got, Keep them, start, start creating an heirloom stock of seeds because eventually what will happen is when you go to buy the seeds, they'll all be GMO, you'll get one crop, you won't be able to re, replant out of, the, out, of the, out of the harvested crop that you've got and you'll have to go back to Monsanto. And of course you're using GMO seeds, which we know have got, they've got animal parts in them, we've got insect parts, it's all really weird, weird stuff, isn't it? It's, real, it's, it's just dire, but that's what, what Monsanto has. So they will control the growing, um, the growing and harvesting that, that we do as well, what we're allowed to grow. Um, they will also control the supply chain. So when, and that ties into, again, into the, into the, the, the fascist nature component of this, of this total plan to control us all, because they, they'll control the production, they'll control the supply chain, so you won't be able to buy or buy or sell anything without an approval, okay? And we we start to see, you know, the philosophy and the principles of this of this philosophy rear itself in this COVID-19 uh, fake crisis. Here's another big one: water control and supply. We know that right now, water around the world is a huge topic. In in, in the state of Florida, in the U.S. and in, in, in um, some of the counties in Florida, um, it's illegal to collect rainwater. Now, where I live in rural Aotearoa in New Zealand, up here in Te Taitokiro, up north, um, we've got two massive water tanks at the back of my at the back of my um, my property. We've got plenty of water. We we don't have any any stress for water where I am. But water control is going to be absolutely a key um, control um, item that they're going to use against the population. So eventually, you know, like they've done in Miami, they'll restrict and control how you collect your own water. So again, this is provisioned. In the uh, in, in agenda 30 as well, okay. Um, education, right? UNESCO. How many of you have come across UNESCO out there? Exactly. Someone just said massive poisoning of the rural landscape. Exactly. That's right. Massive, massive, massive poisoning of our of our fenua, of our landscape. Education. So UNESCO, right? Um, UNESCO. When you examine it, it, it has has a really uh, has a really lovely. Um, you know, pretend uh, persona attached to it like it's a really, really good thing, like it's, um, you know, it's going to educate you. But the United Nations Educational Scientific, Scientific and Cultural Organization, I love, I love the, I love the interesting way that they bring in the cultural aspect. And as an indigenous uh, Maori of Aotearoa, we'll come back to that because there's an interesting componentry in there. But UNESCO really is a very, very, very frightening. Um, 
it's a frightening um, um, uh, part of the uh, part of the UN framework. Why? Because it's going to it wants to control every aspect of the education issue, right? Our kids. That's why in places like the United Kingdom, they've got they want your kids as soon as they can get them. In the UK, you know, they're wanting kids I think as young as three and four um, to go straight into a a, uh, a preschool uh, type situation where they start to indoctrinate them. With, it, with this global theology, okay, this global theology, the exact theology of the of the one world system, you know, you know, disarm nationalism because that's what they need to do. They need to disarm nationalism so that it's no longer about New Zealand, no longer about Australia, no longer about the United States. It's about the global village and not about my village that I grew up in. So part of that indoctrination is going to happen at the, as as young as they can get into your kids. So my wife and I, we. We um, homeschool our babies, and um, and if you can, it's something that I that I really, really, um, really do recommend that you consider the, to, uh, uh, looking at. It's a hard, hard thing. I don't do it, um, but I really respect that my wife does. I wouldn't have the patience to do it, but it's a it's a one it's one real way of controlling what your what your children are taught and the values and principles. But I can assure you that UNESCO has things in it like sex education um, for young ones. I'm just looking about where my kids are. Honey, yeah. do you want to take the ones out? Because I'm just going to talk about some ones just here. So excuse me, Fano. So um, I'm just getting rid of um, a couple of my little ones. Just uh, hold on one second. So UNESCO, um, so basically in, in, in terms of the education aspect as well, sex education is a really big part of it. So within some of the, the, um, the principles of of UNESCO is the rights of the child, and, and, and included in that is also the right to sexual ed education of all kinds. And I'm talking about like, you know, this is a male, this is a female, this is a penis, this is vagina stuff. It's not like that. It's about, you know, this is a sexual toy, this is all this other stuff. And it's, and you know, it's, there's no business young children learning about that. There's absolutely nothing, you know, that's, you know, not even as a Christian, just looking at it as a, as an adult, you know, I don't want any kid, you know, at three, four, five, six, seven, you know, 19, 11, 12, even 13, knowing what some of the things are within within the sexual topic. They don't need to know that. But within the United Nations framework, they consider that it's, with the UNESCO framework, they consider that it's part of education and that by not letting our kids have access to that is a denial of the human rights. Okay? Which brings us into, of course, when you study the human, uh, the humanist manifesto, which is not too different in some respects to the uh, communist manifesto, but within UNESCO, um, they they talk, they teach you about globalism, uh, they teach you about um, um, you know, the global citizenship, and just interest, interestingly, you know, when when you start talking about Agenda 30 and 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 how it's this, this, this terrible system of global control, you'd be interested to know that in New Zealand there's something called the Global Citizenship Education Aotearoa Organisation. Let me say that again. Global Citizenship Education Aotearoa. That's interesting. I haven't looked at their website yet. But one of the key things that they... They also within UNESCO they talk about sustainable development, of course, and we and we'll, we'll come back to that as well. But within the um, within the UNESCO framework, they talk about culture. Now, back in 2015, myself and a and a very lovely lady, Tetui Shortland, um, and Paula Tehuri Hanganui, and uh, Matua Rawson Wright from all from up north and from uh, Rotorua, we went to uh, the United Nations to the United Nations. Uh, form of permanent form of indigenous issues, okay, and what we did, um, what we did there, we took along and um, 
Yeah, I hope you're right, Rena. We do need to stand up for those uh, for those water rights. Sorry, guys. So a team of a team of four of us went to the United Nations Permanent Forum of Indigenous Issues at the United Nations, where I was there to talk about uh, presenting a a a World Indigenous Festival here in Aotearoa as part of the work that I was doing. I had started at Auckland Council, and uh, we got there. And basically, it's a framework where all the people of the of the indigenous world, including people from the the Samis of of Scandinavia of uh, of northern Scandinavia, they were there, and um, they're an incredible looking people. Look like they've just walked off the set of um, um, of the Hobbit. They're amazing looking people. But you've had you had indigenous people from the Celtics. You know, you had the family from the Amazon. They were from every everywhere, Africa. Um, you know, United States, of course, Canada. We had an Inuit family there, First Nations from everywhere, Pacific. It was fantastic to be there. But what, but what I did get a sense of when I was there is that it, I, I kind of felt that it was really a, a a huge placating tool to make all the indigenous families think that we actually had a real say about things. And one of the one of the interesting things that I did see was when we turned up there as as independent Maori. Is, is that this this forum for indigenous people was meant to be for independent non-government um, or non-mandated government mandated um, indigenous organizations and representatives to turn up and talk on the main floor about what it is that you're concerned about and what you wanted attention brought to back in your home countries uh, and the attention by the main UN um, organization but one of the things that 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 really stood out to me um, is that I, I'm watching people speak all of a sudden we had a group from the New Zealand government from Te Pone Kōkiri. Now Te Pone Kōkiri, uh, to some of our international listeners um, and watchers um, may not know what Te Pone Kōkiri is, but really it's our, our Indigenous Māori Development Agency. Okay, and and, it's, and it was interesting seeing these, the, the, our, our, our Māori sisters, they're all, all ladies, stand up and talk and they were given a very strict brief they spoke to that script, weren't allowed to take questions, and once they said it, kia ora, thank you very much, and they gapped it as they left as quickly as they could. Why? Because they were given a short rope to speak to, and that was it. They weren't allowed to go off topic. They were given strict orders on that. But the the interesting thing that came out of that is that I started seeing a a, a hierarchy system within even within the indigenous framework that was there, that um, they had their they had their leaders and they had the mass. And these leaders up the top there were basically being fed, almost being, being fed a, a philosophy that they had to act under to really take all the information from the, all the indigenous family from around the world and then put it into documents and reports to go into the main UN machinery. Um, but in all my assessment following our trip there to the UN, I haven't really seen anything come of it. And that's why when you start going into the, the Paris Accord and you understand what the Paris Accord around climate change really is, you start to understand really what we're talking about is, um, is, is a system of, of massive control. And the climate agenda is all about control. It's not about sustainability. Because like you are all out there, I want to maintain our water. I want a pollution-free Aotearoa. I want the world to be pollutant-free. And I want people to be eating beautiful and, and, and nutritious food. But that's not what they're talking about because within the within Agenda 30, which is meant to be all about the Paris Accord and and, clim and climate uh, preservation and uh, planet preservation, you will actually see when you unpack it that it has all these elements in that we're talking about that are about control. So UNESCO is a is a huge education 
um, an evil education platform where they're, where they're educating your children and everybody and conditioning us to see things their way. Okay, also within Agenda 30 and Agenda 21, uh, they control the medical and health arena as well. Now, I want you to write this down, please. This is a, this is a reasonably long word. And when I ask people this, they, they, I don't think anyone's heard of it when I've ever mentioned it to them. But write this down. Codex Elementarius. Codex Elementarius. I'll spell that for you. C-O-D-E-X. Codex, as it reads. As it reads. And then Elementarius. A-L-I-M-E-N-T-A-R-I-U-S. Codex Elementarius. Now, people have never heard of it. Um, I didn't hear, hear about, about it until about maybe about about 10 years ago. But Codex Elementarius is a is a uh, is a is almost like a it's a multinational committee that that basically provides information to the UN and also executes some of the wishes of the UN around um, um, GMO GMO labelling, um, the pharmaceutical industry and the alternative. Um, health industry as well. So the regulation of things that I'm into like, and I'm sure you are, like vitamins and health supplements, okay? Now that kind of sounds like, yeah, it could sound, you know, yeah, pretty pretty reasonable, but when you get into it, it's, 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 it's wicked. It truly is. Go in and have a look. But what it does is, this, this, this Codex Elementarius um, committee basically decides what you will be eating, whether it's label, uh, whether, whether it's going to have you're going to have a steak that has a bit of bit of pig in it, bit of bit of insect in it, and a bit of something else in it, and and they decide whether whether they will label label it that way. And what the Codex Elementarius has done around the world is that it's been working with governments to get get to get its get its code mark almost like you know everyone's heard of um, ISO international standards. You know it's it's almost like an ISO or a benchmark where they whatever they put up. Um, just gets approved and gets led into your country. But what it does and it's been able to do is that it's a, it's a multinational committee. So the Canadians one year might do food labelling. Uh, the Brits one year might do, um, they might um, deal with the alternative health um, industry. Um, the Australians might do something and it just goes on and on, right? And, but what they'll do is that they'll be able to, they'll be able to say to, to the um, to the retail sector in, in Britain or Canada or New Zealand or wherever Codex Elementarius is accepted and they'll say, yep, we've, we've suddenly just um, relaxed all the standards around G GMO labelling of meat or GMO labelling of canned goods. And that means, that, that means, you know, when you go and buy something off the shelf in any of these jurisdictions where they operate, you know, you're looking at and, and you might even be looking at a... Um, in the health food shop, you look at it and think, oh yeah, this is all good. Yeah, it's got nutmeg in it, or nut meat, or or or, or, or tofu, or something like that. Okay, but you know, and it all looks good, but it may not have the fact that it's that it was you know grown, you know grown grown in a formula, or or it's been GMO modified and it's got a different enzyme put in it, and all these things that 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 affect our DNA when we when we eat them. You know, so they control. Really, um, what the, you know, that's part of the tentacles of control to make it to control whether we're healthy or not. The other aspect of Codex Elementarius is around um, um, big pharma as well. So, um, Codex Elementarius probably has a lot of has a connection with centres like CDC, like the Centre for Disease Control in the US. Um, they control pharma and what what the what the regulatory um, um, standards are for for how pharma the pharmaceutical industry can operate. But the, the concerning thing with, within that, though, is that within the, 
within a channel of operation that they have in that pharmaceutical area, they also attach the alternative health industry in there as well. So vitamin C's, as we know, if you can't eat nutritious food because it's been GMO to the heck, then you're going to go and buy vitamins, go and buy vitamins, aren't you? But I can, I can tell you confirmed examples now where Codex Elementarius is fully entrenched in the UK. They've now regulated the potency of, of vitamins in the UK that they're almost, a, they're almost totally impotent. They're almost a, a placebo product. So that when you buy them, you're thinking, oh, vitamin C. The actual effect on your system is very negative to actually be a supplement that'll help you, um, you know, have better health than that. So basically, what does that do? If you can't help yourself stay healthy through natural means, you go back to pharmaceuticals, don't you? So you go back to, you go back to synthetic means, and it's horrible. Also, within Codex Alimentarius, as as in within Agenda, as in good for all of those people that like to to take things out of the garden. Out of us Māori, we use rungoa, which of course is natural, holistic, you know, naturally grown plants to um, to heal us, to make us feel better. They're even going to going to control that. Okay, they even control that. So now you know of stories of where they'll have scientists that have gone into the Amazon 30 years ago. They've gone up into a, into a, up the Amazon. They come to the tribe for a couple of years and they'll identify a very, very, um, very healthy um, plant base that cures, you know, sicknesses and heals quickly, makes, you know, keeps the population through natural means and through organic plant-based um, solutions keeps them healthy. So what they do is that they, in those days, they they would take the take the plant. They'll go back down, go back to New York or wherever they're from, and they'll they'll create a synth synthetic equivalent, and they'll patent that natural. And then that means that even the plant derivative that it comes from will be subject to that patent. Which means now that when that when the indigenous people then go to use their their plant based um, healing and, and natural um, herbs and, and healing substances that they're now breaking the law because it's subject to a patent. Okay, and that patent, of course, is the same with the GMO seeds. It's under patent. And, and I forgot to mention before that in the food sector when I was talking about that, 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 that they say that um, about 400,000 um, Indian farmers have killed themselves over the last few years because of, you know, I've seen their livelihoods destroyed by Monsanto. They haven't been able to, to live because they can't afford the seed. They've realised it's, it's bad seed and they've been, been prevented to, uh, to grow their own. So Codex Elementarius, please have a good look at that because that's really important. And, for, and that's got a, um, if you look at, look at the Treaty of Waitangi for all us Kiwis, you know, when we start looking at Article 1, Article 2 and Article 3, we can see that that, that, that Agenda 30 is a complete attack of all of these things. We'll go into a bit more of this why, but we know that, we know that Agenda 30 will undermine all of these these natural things. Because why? Because we want to do what we want to do with our natural, you know, with our lands, with our natural healing things. We want to grow our kumara. We want to, when we grow things, give it to our neighbours. Uh, because one of the interesting things also is that if you look at um, probably about I think. My mum's ringing me. About four years ago, they brought in the a, 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 a new clause in the New Zealand Health and, and Food Safety Act where they prevented, they, they, they wrote a law up which prevented us being able to, to cook things and just, or, or trade food with our neighbour over the fence. So when I would come home from fishing, uh, when I had a few years ago, when I had my boat, I'd smoke up some fish, 
I'd give it over the fence to my neighbour, they'd be thrilled and they'd give me a couple of pumpkins or something like that. Well, underneath the, the principle of the new um, Health and Safety Act um, in New Zealand, you're not allowed to do that, right? So, and that's all, again, speaking to the agendas and principles of Agenda 21 and 30. Okay, we're almost getting there to the point of all this, guys, but I wanted to give you the framework so that you understand the different sectors underneath Agenda 30, which they are going to use to bring in this one world system. Okay, so that's Codex Elementarius. Go have a look at that and be prepare to be depressed. Trade groups. Trade groups. Now, I know these lovely people like Catherine, uh, like Catherine uh, Gal, who's online with me right now. Kia ora, Catherine. Um, you and I were very fortunate to spend an afternoon one time with, with Professor Jane Kelsey, who was, um, who was standing up against the, uh, the TPPA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which, again is just a tool to bind us all into regionalism, regional um, trade agreements which then become, uh, which then get uh, um, amalgamated um, into, a, into a global system. When you start to examine uh, the, the UN um, system, how it's carved up to map, it's basically got us into 10 trade groups. Okay, and within the United States, it's so big, they've split it up into groups as well because it's so massive, you know, how they're going to control everybody, have populations in, in the urban environments. But within, within, um, within the trade groups, you will start to see that, again, you will start to see the head of fascism come up because within these trade groups, they'll control populations. A couple of weeks ago, I posted something um, online which talked about the Bolivian uh, water wars, okay, the Bolivian water wars or Bolivia war of water, which was a which was a, which was essentially a civil war caused by the government getting into debt and the corp and corporates coming in and buying the the supply of water, okay, and controlling that supply and charging the poor population uh, to uh, to buy their own water back, and of course upping the price, upping the price, upping the price, upping the price to the point where they couldn't take any more, and they finally went took to arms to uh, to uh, have a go at the at the government. But that there is a is a little micro example uh, as to what will happen. We talk about trade barriers and trade tariffs, and I've been very fortunate over the last um, five years to have served on on three different international trade trade roundtables, and I've got to have a um, I got to have a really good look at, around the philosophy around business and, and, and what we need to be able to move funds into other um, tax jurisdictions so that we can invest in, in other countries. I learned a lot about how we need to, you know, do, do trade tariffs around, um, um, you know, whether it be dairy, whether it be forestry, primary sector, whether it be, you know, just think of something you can sell from our country to another country or your country to us. You know, there's normally a, a trade tariff or an agreement around how that's going to be. It could be down to, okay, we'll pay you this, um, but you will, you will have to do, and we'll let your products in, but you've got to make sure that you do ABC. Okay, so tariffs, are, that's a very, very layman's explanation of that, but you get my drift. But the, but the principles around trade groups that the UN will use is around... Um, is around grouping the controls into manageable bundles. Okay, so if we take the agri sector of New Zealand, so agri sector in New Zealand used to be the primary um, contributor to the GDP. That no longer is. Tourism became that. Tourism has been decimated by this COVID-19 fake crisis, and um, and so the the agri sector or the primary sector has been the main main provider for for our GDP. But unfortunately. You know that's 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 going to change a lot now, as you know, because markets have collapsed. But the whole thing about um, 
trade agreements and how they're trying to group them into regional agree agreements is when they can absolutely, from one central point in a regional, in a regional area, that, that regional centre point will control all the ag agricultural and primary sectors around, around the regional membership. And it's a very dastardly thing, and that's why the TPPA needed to be resisted, and it was resisted, but it, now it's been retitled. I forget the name off the top of my head. I didn't know it. It's been retitled and called something else, but it's exactly the same thing. The Americans really, really rebelled against it and, um, and really knew, knew what it was about, and they weren't prepared to, to support it. And um, so it's going to be interesting, interesting to see what Trump does with it now. But the trade groups are definitely... Are definitely uh, one one um, one string one 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 work stream of how they're going to control and roll out Agenda 30. Now the the other thing is financial control. We all know that that it's headed that we're heading to a cashless society. I guess every one of us on here right now know that uh, we that's where this is heading. Why? Because the, if you control the food, you control the money, you control the populations. So we know that the that the that the that there's going to be a centralisation of currency and, and how uh, financial set transactions are going to be done, okay? I, I mentioned the AML before, which is the anti-monetary laundry. Um, it's, you know, I understand that we don't want to, we don't want to have, um, you know, use drug money for bad things or or, or, or those. I mean, or, you know, let's be sensible, sensible about this. We don't want to, you know, um, use terrorist money for this and that and the rest of it. I totally get that. But, what we don't want to do is chuck the poor baby out with the bathwater because within the AML system now they can monitor you and what we do with our money. You know, they used to say that, you know, people like the government was only interested in transactions 10,000 or more. Well, no, it's down, it's down to 1,000. In Aussie, um, they're already talking about the cashless society there and bringing that in for some of the some of the banks that are operating there. But the centralisation of all, of all the um, finances into one into into one uh, financial system is a is going to bring such a tight control. A revelation in in, um, in chapter 13 from verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. It says that there's going to be a system that's going to be set up whereby if you don't agree with it with the system, it's a religious system, it's a sovereign system, which means it's a secular system and it's a religious system. They're going to set up a system. That's going to be global. It's going to be so tight that unless you agree with it and don't receive their mark of authority, that you're not going to be able to buy and you're not going to be able to sell. Now that's a major problem because because we all need to be able to buy and sell uh, to get what we need. But in order to be able to buy and sell, you've got to be able to spend money. And if they're going to say that you, unless you do what they say, that you're not going to be able to buy and sell, what that means is that's economic that's economic control on a personal level. I'm just going to get my uh, my phone, honey. Could you plug me in, please, for my phone, my power? Okay, thanks, guys. Um, where was I? Okay, so so if if they're going to bring in a system that if you don't agree with them, you can't buy or sell. That system needs to be so complete, so thorough as to control everything, right? So what they're going to need to do, and you've figured it out already, they need to collapse the system, don't they? They need to completely collapse the current system because right now. Um, I can go down the road and basi basically um, buy all the toilet paper I want now because the, the rush and the crisis of toilet paper is over now. But, um, but when you really consider it and really start to unpack what that means, you understand that, they, that they've always needed to collapse the system that we're dealing with. Now, within the financial con control area and with central banking and that, you basically know that 
that all of the all of the financial institutions all come back to essentially uh, one or two organisations, right? And we talk about the federal, um, you know, the, the the Federal Reserve System, the federal no in here, oh yeah in there, uh, the Federal Reserve System. Just bear with me, guys. I'm just plugging my phone in so I don't lose you. Okay. Oh, what's not going to happen? Can I go like that? Let's see. Okay, we rotate your device so we can't see your phone while live. Oh, okay. On, let's see. Sorry, guys, just be with me. Oh, I've lost myself. No, oh, it's a turn around. So, how do I do that? Okay. How do I turn it back around? Down the bottom of the camera. Click it. Where's that? Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> oh, there I go. G on Tech Challenge. Sorry, guys, just plugging myself in so I don't um, turn off here. Okay. Alright, so this system that they're going to collapse and to bring in this system, that um, this financial system of control, it's going to involve, obviously it's going to involve a world currency. None of us know what that looks like yet. No one has a, has a, um, has a glass ball to do that, but we know it's coming. We can all feel it, all of us. We know that, the, that it's been look, looked at for a long, long time. And one of the com comments that I want to make is, is that the Federal Reserve System that basically we're all tied into is, is based on fiat money. So all of you that don't know what I'm talking about when I say fiat money, fiat money is 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 make make believe money. Okay, it doesn't exist. Once upon a time, when we talked about you know fin finance and currencies, it used to be I've got ten sheep, um, ten goats, twenty bulls, um, five camels, and um, a whole bunch of dogs, and I'm rich. Okay, and when I used to pay pay for someone um, for something, I would give them. I'd give them a, I'd give them a goat. Here you go, bro. Here's your goat. Thanks very much. Thank you for doing my paving for me. That's and that's called pecuniary, pecuniary. Okay, that's pecuniary. That's where you get the term pecuniary um, uh, advantage. Okay, so when you commit fraud, you commit a pecuniary. You take you go and um, commit a, pecu a pecuniary advantage activity through um, through deceit. Okay, through fraud through fraud, and that's so pecuniary is when you when you're paid something. So when coins were came about, you know, not everybody could walk around with 50 goats in their back pocket to pay somebody. So what did they do? They created coinage. So and what happened was, um, you know, people would turn up and say, "Look, I've got all this gold. I've got all this silver. I can't carry that in my back pocket. I'll give that to you. You give me some coins." So once upon a time, you turn up with your big bar of gold or whatever, or silver, hand it over, and then they'll give you some coins, and you go away and spend it. And at the back of your mind, or when you're trading these coins, um, then you know that that person knows that that's a part of a gold bar or a silver bar back in the vault, right? And then, of course, that turned into printed and paper money, right, to where that became a banking note. So when you look at um, old notes from the 1800s, they're big, massive suckers like that. You walk around and there'd be a big note like this, looking like a bond, but it was, a, it was actually a note where you'd go in and present that and they'll give you the cash for, you know, give you coins or they'll give you give you value back for it, okay? But what's hap what happened is, and, um, and you know, let's use the United States as an example because David and Alicia will know all about this as well. In the United States, when they created their, their, their money system or of cash and coin, it was back in Fort Knox, there'd be all this gold reserves. And those gold reserves would provide the, um, the, the backing and the financial um, basis for which they would hand out banknotes because when they handed out a banknote, that means the equivalent of that banknote would be back in the vault in gold. That's called the standard. And of course, when the US dollar first was came out, it was backed by the gold standard. Okay, and then what happened was 
Later on, that then became the gold, um, the silver standard after President Ford had his way, and then after the after that, the the value of of the dollar started to started to decrease in in what they call intrinsic value because there is none, and then it went from being a gold standard to a silver standard, and then it basically to just being paper standard, and that's why it's called fiat money. Fiat money when they when a when a bank lends you money, like if you look at the IMF or if you look at the Federal Reserve, when it lends money, it only needs 10% of the value of that loan in its vault. In its vault. So that means if they lend you, if they've got 10 cents in their vault, they can lend you a dollar. Okay? Let me say that again. If they've got 10 million in the bank, they can lend you 100 million. If they've got 10 trillion in the bank, they can lend you a hundred trillion, but the other ninety trillion doesn't exist. It's called fiat money, and that's bank, that's based on a on a on something called fractional reserve banking. It's criminal. We're all subject to it, okay? But it's criminal, and they're going to use their very same system. They're going to collapse it, rebuild it again to control us all. The very last um, the, the the last um, component of the of um, of the UN here is the religio aspect, and I really want to. I really want to spend a few minutes of this. Now, I believe that as a as a um, as an imperfect Bible Bible believing Christian, I believe that everyone has the right to believe whatever they believe. If you want to believe that Mickey Mouse is God, even though it, I believe it's wrong, that's your business. And I love you enough and support you enough to believe whatever you believe. Jesus said something really important. He said that that I knock on the door. If you hear me knock. And invite me in, I'll come and supper with you. Okay, that's a, that's him knocking on the door. He's not kicking your door down and forcing himself on you. So when you look back throughout the, the history of wars and religious wars, none of them represent the Jesus of the Bible that I know. None of them. Because he didn't say, I'm going to kick your door down, put a gun to your head or a knife to your head or a sword to your head. You believe me or I'll kill you. He didn't say anything like that. He said, I knock. And if you let me in, I'll come in with you. So religious freedom really, and spiritual freedom should be available to everybody regardless of what you want to believe. As long as it's not, you know, I believe I can I can rape children or, or, or anything stupid. Let's be sensible about it. We're not talking about anything like that. What we're talking about is religious freedom. Now, within the, within the UN, they have what's called an ecumenical um, plan for a one-world religion system. Some of you would have heard of it, for sure. But when you examine it really up close, it's actually nothing to do about about bringing people together for a good thing. It's actually about bringing, bringing people together to control you better and what you think, uh, more control. Within the, within the religious um, or, the, or the spiritual goals of the UN, it's about creating a one global religion system. It doesn't matter what, what faith discipline you come from, as long as you click into it and you're, and you're in their system that supports what they, what they call the New Age principles and and i'm going to going to tell you something right now they have something called the luciferian mm -hmm. initiation the luciferian initiation just google it they don't hide it it's in there but one of the interesting things that i said earlier about the united nations and what it's founded on it's founded on the on the on the principles of three key women yep females okay it, who wrote um who basically created the theosophy, theosophy society in the u.s now, anybody who's ever studied Freemasonry and all of that, oh. here we go. Sorry, guys, that was my fault. I'll turn you back up around again. Anybody who's done any um, any research on um, 
on on the Theosophy Society, no, it's a pretty evil um, evil society to be a part of. It's it's really evil. We'll talk about that in a minute. Just as a fun fact, Elvis Presley, uh-huh. who I really loved when I grew up, was a um, was a member of the Theosophy Society. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a uh, a insight to a bit more about uh, about the king. But anyway, the UN's religio um, framework that they're setting up is basically you can believe anything you like as long as they approve it. Now, is that religious freedom? No, it's not. It's not religious freedom at all. So, and and and, and when you start to read some of the principles behind these these ladies that they write the principles that a lot of the UN um, principles are, are founded on, it's, it, reads, it reads like a horrible nightmare. So, I want you to write down a couple of names again, please, guys. The first name name is Helena. She's a Russian American lady. Helena, H E L E N A. Helena Petrova, P E T R O V A, Petrova Blavatsky, B L A Blavatsky, B L A V A T S K Y, Blavatsky, something like that. You'll find it. Helena Petrova Blavatsky. The next lady is another lady called Annie Ward Passant. Annie Ward Passant, spelled B E S S A N T. But the real kicker is another lady called. Alice A. Bailey. Alice A. Bailey. Now, Alice A. Bailey had, is, is a, is a well-known Luciferian. They're all Luciferians. All three of these ladies are Luciferians. They're also Freemasons, female Freemasons. And what they did was, she, Alice A. Bailey, she created the whole philosophy that the New Age movement would, would eventually be based on. And that's, the, and, that's the, and that's the philosophy that Lucifer is the light bearer and that Lucifer is a brother of Jesus, which is not in the Bible at all. um, Jesus isn't a created being. He's the creator, not the created being. But in the theosophical movement, she taught that that, um, a new age of enlightenment would come in, but it would involve all of humanity coming into the United Nations framework that we see today. She even used the term that it would bring in a one-world order system where everything would be ordered, Everything would be under a one-world religio system and spiritual system, and that if you didn't go along with that system, you were considered unfit and spiritually unevolved, and you need to be gotten rid of. Okay, so it's very, very sensible, very, very serious um, um, thing that you've got to look into. Look at these ladies and look at what they taught. It's just amazing, and this is what the United Nations has based itself on. These are the premises. That everything that we're talking about, whether it be food, land use, medical and health, military, education, trade, financial control, it all comes down to spiritual and religious control. Bet your bottom dollar, it's all that. Because when you examine the foundations of the UN, the very first thing that they that they um, that they started at started at work with was was on the spiritual philosophy behind the UN and what it was constructed to do. So when you start to examine the writings of Alice A. Bailey, you start, everything starts to, to make sense as to why things are the way they are today, why you know, we see you know, the, the Harry Potter, or, you know, the whole Harry Potter movement where, where kids now think it's okay to, to, to create spells and to, to speak to the dead, both of which are highly forbidden in the Bible, and, to, and you know, where um, you have new ageism of all kinds of strange beliefs coming into it, and this is not just about an attack on, on Christ and Christianity. It's just really weird stuff anyway. Stuff that even before I knew Jesus, I would have gone, well, where are they coming from here? Where are they getting off here? 
but the, the stuff that they come that they come through with is also where on one hand they talk about the spirituality of the human but they also bring forth what's called the Gaia hypothesis the Gaia G-A-I-A the Gaia hypothesis now the Gaia hypothesis goes like that with spirituality why? because they make Mother Earth the god of, of another god on, on in, in our planet Mother Earth another god Okay, and they also put a human in charge of that as the top god as well. And uh, some of you will start to be picking up where I'm coming from. So that is Agenda 30 for you. I just wanted to get that. Boy, that took a lot longer than I thought, guys. And an hour and a half is still on time. I'm going to go for about another 20 minutes because we'll have to pick this up again. It's, this is really, this is just really setting, setting the framework uh, for, for another conversation around there. But let's talk a, bit, let's talk a lot more about what we're dealing with the C19. Uh, crisis. So we now know that the science behind behind the virus itself doesn't isn't substantiated. Now I want to put my hand up right now. When I when I advocated for the lockdown, when it came up as a topic, why? Because I I care for people. I care for my own whānau and family, and I care about my own health as well. But I care about the idea of people receiving anything that comes from overseas that's foreign to us, um, making us sick. So I'm going to put my hand up right away and say yes. That when I was first learning about this stuff, I advocated that for that. But it didn't take me long once I started getting my head into it that I realised that there was something very, very, very wrong with this whole story. As soon as you start to, to um, basically investigate that Bill Gates is involved with anything, you know that it's it's not good to start with. So let's 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 quickly expose some of the things that we that we should all know here. And this is stuff that I knew about before, uh, Dr. Buttar and and um, uh, um, and the other Indian doctor that um, I forget his name, escapes me right now. He's neat. Anyway, you know, and before Dr. Judy Michaelowitz, I went in and I had a really good look at at the thread of and the chain of evidence surrounding this, and I believe that I pretty well got it got it pinned down. But one of the interesting things is when you when you, you have a thing of of called a chain of evidence. Chain of evidence is where you touch this in a crime scene, you put it in a bag, you label it, where you found it, notes go with it, and it gets put into a vault and secured so that you, that you can pull it out and, um, and, and examine it, right? Okay, that's the chain of evidence, but there's also the chain of players and actors, and that's what we're going to touch on a little bit here now. So if you look at the players and the, uh, involved in this, so we know that, that immediately that Bill Gates, let's examine Bill Gates, we know that he's been involved in the vaccine movement for 30 years. Now, I just want to put right up front is that I'm not against all vaccines, I'm against most vaccines. And the reason why I say that is that my own son, he's a beautiful, handsome 20-year-old uh, uh, boy, um, it was very, very, very damaged by, by his um, MMR vaccine. And he's a very handsome big boy, but he's very incapable. You know, it's, it's an absolute disaster. Um, and I ended up doing a, a, a huge amount of investigation and research on the topic of vaccines. And I think I can say safely that vaccines, pretty much 9 out of 10, have got poisons in them that haven't been, haven't been proven to be, and haven't been proven to be safe. So what, what's come out recently, and, it, and this is nothing, this, none of this is conspiracy stuff, this is documented process of information about the processes. So the CDC do not... And I repeat, do not double double blind test um, each vaccines. What does that mean? They don't they don't test them for safety, okay? And what they did is that they came um, um, back in the in the in the middle 80s 
you know, vaccine companies who are getting slaughtered all over the, all over the US and losing billions of dollars being sued for, for vac vaccine damage and injuries, okay? They're getting litigated and losing money. So they lobbied the US government then and said, look, if you guys don't indemnify us against pr prosecution and losing money, we're not going to make any vaccines. So the government then relented and said, okay, and they brought in, the, they brought in an act of, um, of, uh, of the government which basically said that the US government would pay for all the damage damages and, uh, and the claims attributed from vaccine injuries and pay the damages and litigation on behalf of the um, on behalf of the vaccine companies. So what you have now is that you've got vaccine companies that there's no recourse to them. They can put whatever they like into vaccines. They can kill your kid, make your kids, you know, make you or your child um, sick and you don't have a leg to stand on. You will be able to take the, the US government to court but they'll, they'll give you a billion dollars and tell you to go away, or 20 million or 30 million dollars and tell you to go away. That's fact. Happens every year in the US, so that can't be argued with. Um, but the interesting thing is, when you say to, say to nurses and doctors, and you, ask, and you ask them, look, what is thimerosal? They say, oh, it's a preservative. And you ask them, what, yeah, but what is thimerosal? They go, uh, um, I don't know. Well, thimerosal, T-H-I-M-E-R-S-O-L, Thimerosal, T-H-I-M-E-R-S-O-L. Thimerosal is mercury. It's the pharmaceutical code word for mercury, which is a neurotoxin, which is exactly why all the old people are getting their, their, their uh, mercury fillings out because we know now it's a neurotoxin seeping into your body. And yet they go and put that into babies who've got no, no, no system that can fight it, okay? So that's, that's, that's vaccines for you. But what Bill Gates has done, he's invested in almost all of the all of the major um, scientific labs that, that um, research, uh, research vaccines and how to make them. He's also researched um, how to make the viruses that the, that the vaccines are needed for. Um, and, he's, and he's also tested his vaccines on major, major populations in Africa and India. Okay? Always the poor you know, third world emerging, emerging countries get tested on by this bugger. So what he's done is, is that uh, his, you know, when you examine Bill Gates' history, you'll find out that his that his father was a eugenicist, um, such mm -hmm. as he is. And what's a what's what's eugenics? So eugenics is, as we know, it, well, let's make it really simple. Eugenics is is, is about um, weeding out the the weak part of the human herd, culling them out, and only being left with the profitable. Sound familiar to the socialist agenda to create a productive herd? Does doesn't it? So you and, and of course the Nazis use that because they were all about you know creating the master race and all that. So that that's where Bill Gates is, Bill, Bill Gates comes from. Of course, Bill Gates is also a a relative and member of the Rockefeller Fano. So he wasn't anyone that started from dirt poor. He came from a very very wealthy family, but he came from a eugenicist family as well. So his whole objective, of course, is to is to cull the human herd back down and also to um, uh, to to rid the rid the world of the population that we have now. So most of us that have done research on Bill Gates will find out that he's he's actually put put his foot in his mouth a few times and come out and said, hey, look, you know, if we do our work well over the next few years, we'll reduce the population by 10 to 15 percent. So he's on record for saying these outlandish things, but he's also been caught out working with the WHO, working in in Africa, also with the WHO's um, current general um, director general. 
giving mass, massive amounts of vaccines to African women that sterilise them, that have a sterilisation component in the vaccines. He was found out by this, so was the WHO, and this is the same, same man, the Minister of, of Ethiopia's Health Ministry, who's also a socialist, he basically allowed Gates to come in and do this, and that's why they're like that, these two good bosom buddies. And this is the same guy now that's in charge of the WHO, who's working with Gates, on, uh, on, who's funded by Gates, and the same guy who's funding, um, who was, is pushing this false agenda, and is the same WHO who is giving the New Zealand government advice as to how they should um, respond to the... Um, uh, respond to, the, to this fake crisis. So what you have now, also our own Director General, Dr Ashley um, Bloomingfield, I'll call him Blooming, I know it's Bloomfield, I'm being cheeky, but Dr Ashley Bloomfield was the uh, Director of, of Infectious Diseases in 2010 at the World Health Organisation. So he's absolutely um, indoctrinated in the WHO. And who are the WHO? They are a, they are a specialist sub-agency of the United Nations. I just wanted to clarify that so you know. So Bill Gates, so let's look at these chain of players. Bill Gates goes in there, he funds research, he funds vaccine, vaccinations um, and vaccine programs which are, which are devastating. He, um, he also um, is in business with Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci sits on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as a senior executive member. So he sits on his executive on his board and, it, and helps shape the, the uh, uh, the workings of the Bill and Melinda Gates, which are nothing but evil. So Dr. Fauci does that. And let's look at Dr. Fauci again. We know he's the, he is the director, uh, boss of the National Institute of Health in the US, who funded $3.7 million US tax payer money to the Chinese, to the Wuhan lab, Wuhan lab that, of course, finalised the weaponisation of, um, of, the, of the Wuhan coronavirus. And so what's happening is now is that... Um, you now that's very loosely the, 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 the chain of players. So you've got the WHO, you've got the UN, you've got the you've got you, you've got Bill Gates, you've got Tony Fauci, you've got the Purbright Institute in the UK, you've got Dr. Um, Andy Ferguson, I think his name is, at the Imperial College in London, who falsified his report and said that there'd be two million dead people in the UK now, tens of millions dead across the US. Everywhere and around, it was based on the Imperial College model that he put out and gave to all the different players like the WHO and to governments. That was completely criminally wrong. That we've based we've based this entire crisis on, and what's criminal and, and insidious to us, of course, is that now we've seen our economy destroyed, like like our friends in America will be seeing right now, and we're seeing that um, that the information is crooked that we based that that it's based on. So why are they doing all this? It's because they want to have full, unobstructed access to bringing in this Agenda 30 and the global system. To bring all these elements that we're talking about, whether controlling your food, land use, education, trade groups, medical and health, religio, financial control, military. This is the way, this is the very beginning of it, folks. It's not the end of it. And what we have here, let's talk about Jacinda for a second. So Jacinda, I've put this on my Facebook, but for those of you who don't know, Jacinda Ardern is... Um, is the daughter of a very fine man who I worked with for a week in uh, in UA when he was the um, sorry guys when he was the UN uh, UN when he was the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade High Commissioner in UA I spent a work, week working with him uh, in the island beautiful island of uh, of UA in the Pacific and I got to know um, Ross he's also ex police and a very very lovely man and um, and I've gotten gotten to know um, um, Jacinda on and off over a few times 
of, of catching up with her over the years. I had a coffee with her at the airport last year. But when you, when this is not about what Jacinda Ardern looks like when you're sitting down having a coffee with her, because you never really know people just over coffee. That's impossible. But when you go into her background and understand that in 2009, she was the president-elect of the International Socialist Youth Movement. You start to get an insight into her conditioning. Prior to that, she was a, um, a protege of, of Helen Clark's. Helen Clark, I met Helen Clark at the UNDP in New York in her office. Um, Helen Clark is the globalist, globalist, globalist. Okay, She really, truly is, just like Bill Gates, just like the Clintons, just like all of them. She truly is. A, but she's at the, at the core of Helen Clark is a deep sense of communism. And also, um, um, Jacinda spent a lot of time uh, working for Helen Clark in her office. She then get, becomes an MP in her own right, then becomes um, elected as the... Uh, as the uh, global president of the socialist youth youth movement, let's examine that. So this globe, this globalist um, socialist youth youth um, movement organisation, youth organisation, this would have to be the incubator, the the nursery of all the the, the postmodernist socialists. Now these are the socialists that would have looked in and studied the, you know, definitely the the value system of of Marxist communism or ma Marxist thinking. They would have, they'd learn about dialectic thinking. They would study about socialism and about herd, I'll call it herdality or herd, about pr pr production, herd production and population management under the socialist umbrella. They'd also learn about how the fascist aspect comes into this, and. Uh, it would be it would be very interesting to find out who else went through that that grounding, and I bet you will find that all the people and the young people that went through that that same that same educational system that's within this movement or within this organisation, I bet you'll find them in the, you'll find them in the WHO, you'll find them in the UN, you'll find you'll find them in all those those globalist um, organisations. So Jacinda Ardern has now really revealed some pretty interesting things to us over the last couple of weeks. She's revealed that she's hostile to Christianity and, in fact, to all religion. But in particular, you'll notice that the left always have a particular um, penchant for, for, for having a go at Jesus Christ. They will do that every time, okay? But she's also, within this, with, with the introduction of this new bill, this new law, she's done a very, very good, incredible job of, um, of bringing a system in that will dragnet all the religious faiths. So um, that's an interesting component. But when you examine the, 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 how this law portrays her thinking, you start to see where this government is going to try and take our country. And that has to be the deepest concern. When, when, when John Key uh, first resigned as Prime Minister of New Zealand, I couldn't figure out why he would do that. It astounded me when he did that, because I thought to myself, here we have a Prime Minister that would have won a, won a third term, no problem. Everybody thought, he, you know, even people that didn't really like him, would have voted him in again. Why? Because everything looked pretty rosy underneath the national government. And, and in fact, I had a Māori leader say to me the other day that the only times Māori really, really thrive is under a, uh, under a national government. Why? Because they hand, hand Māori MPs the, the checkbook, their own checkbook, and they get on with it. Not so under Labour, by the way. I just want to point that out. But anyhow, but I thought, why would John Key resign? It is because the, the right, the centre-right, centre-right national government had done its job. It was now time to pass the baton over to a leftist government. But why? Because the left always brings in the totalitarian, authoritarian um, systems that they need to bring these things in. 
They can't do it. They can't do it any other way. So that's why, that's why Jacinda is proving proving herself to be a puppet of the global global elite, globalist elite. Guys, I've run. I'm running out of power on my phone. I'm running um, out of power in my um, in my Wi-Fi here. But I've got another couple of pages of notes. Look at this. I call this the onion. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm not much of an artist. I call that the onion, and we haven't even got to the onion yet. The onion is 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 which I want to go through with you all. We'll start taking this. This here is what we've talked about today. We've talked about Agenda 30. We've talked about the goals of the one of the one world system, which is central control of all populations, control of all the issues that sustain sustain life, control of education, financial, global, military, legal framework, legal um, one world um, religion. We now know that, but this 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 onion that I want to go into will show you how all of all of the all of the different functionalities of all of these groups, whether it be the UN, the financial system, the mili military industrial complex, and all of these. And it's an absolute um, amazing presentation yet. But one of the other things I do want to give leave a little morsel with you is, as I've said all the way through, is that that all through this, there's a religious aspect to it. That the, that there's a that there's a core um, control uh, piece to this, right? There's a control story, and we need to work towards understanding who and why, um, or who this control organisation is that's calling. Calling the shots behind the behind the scenes and pulling the strings, and we need to identify why they're doing that and what the ultimate game is. And then what I'll do also, I'll have one, I'll have some Bible verses laid out, which will really, really, really dial you into what the Bible says because it's really important. I'm an intellectual guy. Um, I play guitar, but I I also like to think about things coming through, you know, that that appear in front of me. But one of the things that that converted me to becoming a Christian besides learning about who the real Jesus of the Bible is. And I just want to say up front, I don't believe that the Jesus of the Bible that I understand and that I read is being represented in mainstream Christianity. Like I said right up front, I don't believe in religion, I believe in Jesus. Because religion right now, or Christian religion, or mainstream Christianity right now is doing a very, very poor job and actually don't spend enough time reading their Bibles and understanding what the Bible says. We'll go into that a bit later. But I do want to promise you that the next time we come together, that we'll we'll, we'll, we'll dial into this more into the system. We'll talk about the onion of control, and we'll dial in really dial in as to what the Bible says because that blew my mind because I was able to see that there's a timeline in the Bible from 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 Z to A, shall we say Z to A, and I found out that every prediction, every prophecy in the Bible, absolutely 100% up to date. Or on time. It's only the very last bit of time that we haven't seen yet because it hasn't happened. People often say to me, "Yeah, but Nostradamus, Nostradamus. What about Nostradamus?" Well, Nostradamus is of all his hundred percent of prophecies and predictions, only five percent came right. So he's not to be trusted because a true prophet of God or God who knows the end from the beginning knows everything. He can't be wrong. And I've proven him. I've tested him. And everything that he has said has been bang on right up until now. So it's some exciting time. So I'm travelling over the next couple of days, guys. I'll do my best to keep posting things online, but about general things. But hopefully we can all get back. I just wanted to invite anyone that if anyone wants to private message me and want to do a study of it on, on some of the stuff and go over the stuff with me on their own, I'm more than happy to do that. I've got a couple of really dear people that um, I'm doing studies with, and uh, it's a really exciting, really exciting um, time to share this with it because I studied this 20 years ago and I'm now seeing this rolling rolling out. And look, if Jesus can save a mongrel like me and reach me, he can he can reach anyone, right? And I've got to admit, you know, I gave up music six years ago, got back into it, 
and it started to pull me a little way a bit from my focus on the Lord. But man, this crisis brought me back to it because I'm now seeing the very things that the Lord said were going to happen start to happen. So just in closing, thank you all to everyone that's tuned in. I'm really, really grateful. Hopefully we can do it again in the next few days, probably from a motel room down the line. I just want to really pray that you look after each other. Be kind to people, even the ones that don't agree with you or agree with us. Um, it's been shocking to see how, how things have been online. So let's let's be kind and remember to, to, to give everyone the respect to believe what they want to believe. And um, and yes, Greg, um, I might need a roadie for one, for one of my last shows, but there won't be many coming up because uh, I've got a big ministry I want to get into. So guys, thank you. I hope you enjoyed today. And um, I see my cousin Melissa there. I see the beautiful Debbie. Kia ora, Debs. And... Um, and Catherine's still there. The lovely Catherine. So thank you very much, everyone. God bless you all. And again, feel free to um, to get in touch with me. But we've got some really interesting um, things to talk about in my next session with you all. Goodbye, everyone. Kia ora and God bless.